15 verse 8, the Lord is still speaking to Abraham, and Abraham responds. After this promise is made, verse 8, And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. In verse 8, Abraham asked this question of the Lord God, that same phrase that we saw in verse 2, Lord God. How may I know that I shall possess it? How may I know? It is wrong to interpret this as a question of doubt, of lack of faith. I don't think this is a doubt doubt originating kind of a question. But he's asking this to uh, God in faith. He's asking in faith. We have examples of questions like this, asking for a sign like this, not just in Abraham's case, but a few other cases where the questioner is not rebuked, but in, instead he is answered favorably. Okay? An example is Gideon. Gideon asked the Lord, how, how do I know that you're going to use these men, this small band of men, to conquer the Midianites? How can I know? And you remember the, the fleece being wet, right? And then not wet, and the ground being wet once, and then the fleece being wet the other time. And he asked and God answered. And another example is 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah had an illness, uh, an illness to death, to the point of death, and God uh, came to him in, the, in Isaiah the prophet and promised him that he would recover from it. Isaiah prayed about it, pled with God to be healed. God said yes, and then he says, how may I know that it's going to happen? And then God caused the shadow on the staircase to, to change in a miraculous way as evidence of that. And another case is Mary. Mary, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? When she asked, she did not ask in doubt. She asked in faith because then Gabriel answers how it's going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then says, and, and even your, your relative Elizabeth, she has conceived in her old age. Okay? Miraculously done. Now, and then referring to that. So all of these examples with Abraham in our verse, Judges, 2 Kings, and Luke 1 with Mary, all of these were asked in faith and there was no chiding, no, no um, uh, scolding of the questioner, why are you asking? Okay, nothing like that happened. But in Luke 1, remember when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, right. he also asked, he asked and... He was struck with dumbness, muteness, right? He couldn't talk as punishment for asking. But was it asking itself or was it the motive? And it says, it says explicitly in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. Right. He says, you did not believe my words, shall be, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. In Zechariah's case, we have a believer, a godly man, 
who when the word came to him, he didn't believe, so God struck him with dumbness for a while until his son was born. A man of God who was punished because he didn't believe. Then, in the next example, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 16, we have evil king Ahaz, an unbelieving, wicked, evil king Ahaz. Isaiah, the prophet, presents to him the possibility that he can ask for a sign. Ask for a sign. Ask for a miracle. Meaning, ask it in faith. But Ahaz, being wicked, he's playing games with Isaiah. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He's pretending to be spiritual, when he's got an evil, unbelieving heart, so he doesn't ask at all. He doesn't ask for a sign in faith. He just puts on a show of religion saying, oh, no, no, I'm not going to ask, and I'm not going to test the Lord. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Because you know it's wrong to test God. Right? Isn't it wrong to test God, Isaiah? That's what really he's saying. But really, it's not wrong to test God if you're asking in faith. Say, God, do something. Show me, help me, encourage my faith. Abraham did that and so did others here. And that's why even in this chapter, Abraham gets an answer. He's not punished. He gets an answer to reassure him in our passage. And here is the reassurance. Verses 9 to 11, he is told to bring these animals, which are atypical, because in the Levitical law, they were usually to be one year old when they were tender. Here they are mature. But that would be one major difference, the three years of age of each of these animals. And then the birds, like the Levitical code, turtle doves and young pigeons, and then they are not severed um, at all. They're just cut. Uh, I mean, they're just killed. So, verse 10. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid them... Uh, each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. This may be, uh, it's hard to interpret these imageries and these types, but it may be one or both of these things. And there are many interpretations as to what's happening. But I think one is immediately he wants to, or God is telling him about the kind of problems that will occur to his descendants. So they will reach maturity. That is, you will have a great number of descendants, yet they're going to undergo affliction, which he tells him later in this chapter. Yet they don't deserve those afflictions because they are innocent like these birds. And and often, like in the Psalms, it says, I am like a turtle dove. David says, he, he thinks of himself as a turtle dove, as innocent, yet he's being afflicted by people around him. So I think that that is the case here. But it's also indicative and perspective in that Christ, who is innocent, yet he's also put to death. He's innocent, yet he is put to death, and he is mistreated as well, as these animals. some of these animals were cut in two. But there's also covenantal symbolism, which we'll see in the next passage. And then verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. The birds of prey, like the Egyptians, would attack the people of Israel, but God will drive them away or take care of his own people. Yes. Or in the case of Christ, we have 
the rulers, we have the Gentiles, we have Herod, we have Pontius Pilate, we have the Jewish leaders, we have the Jewish crowds, everybody against Christ, but, but they will also be driven away and punished. So those birds of prey, wild creatures, in, in, in metaphorically speaking of humans, those wild creatures who attack Christ, they will be also driven away. And they won't overcome Christ. Because Christ will rise from the dead and give us eternal life. And we will conquer all our enemies. Verse 12. 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." A deep sleep falls on Abraham in verse 12. Verse 12, a deep sleep. Now, when it says the sun was going down, the deep sleep falls on him. Um, this was a deep sleep that came upon him by God. That's the implication. And we, we can say that even though it's implied here and not explicitly said here, because in other places, this deep sleep is more evidently by the hand of God, more explicitly said to be from the hand of God. Example, the first one is in Genesis 2.21. Right. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Mm -hmm. And God took one of his ribs from his side and built into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. That's the first time it occurs. It also occurs in Jonah chapter 1, verse 5, when Jonah is fleeing from obeying God in Jonah 1.5, he goes into the ship, goes down into the hold of the ship, and a deep sleep falls upon him. Then that makes the sailors and all, the whole situation, that situation arises so that they are perplexed and they're in a perilous condition. And then they say, what's wrong with you, man? And they wake, they wake, they wake them up. They wake them up and say, uh, pray to your God. And, and then Jonah explains, and you know how that dialogue goes. So another one is when... Uh, King Saul and his army, they were chasing David. And one of the times that David was rescued was that God caused a deep sleep to fall on the men so that David's man could go across and get the sword by, by Saul and bring it back. And then the, the dialogue, after they wake up, the dialogue takes place between David and Saul. So I think that this was a divinely ordered deep sleep that fell upon Abram. Now, when the sun is going down, it's dark uh, or getting dark and uh, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God is telling Abraham in advance of affliction that this affliction will occur right. and it bothers him. Terror and great darkness fell upon him. God does not just tell Abraham here but this is indicative of what God tells us throughout the Bible. In this world, you shall have tribulation. But take heart, I have over, or take courage, I have overcome the world, right? right? Right. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is happening among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. And this is the way it is here, too. 
God tells us in advance in order to prevent our uh, doubting, our lack of faith, our falling away, us developing an evil, unbelieving heart. He tells us this is the way it's going to happen. God is even better than a military general. No doubt. Right? The military general, he's telling his troops, right? This is what's going to happen. You better be ready. This is what will happen. And he's been preparing them all for that, hasn't he? In, throughout, throughout their training. He prepares them for what's going to happen. God's even better than that because we, he's the captain, uh, right, in heaven. The captain of the host of the Lord is what Jesus' name is in, in Joshua chapter 5. So this is who he is and he's telling us this is the way it will be. But don't worry about it. Right. I've got it all worked out. I, I will cause all things to work together for good, he's saying. Verse 13, And God said to Abram, here is the dilemma or the affliction. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. They're going to be in a foreign land. That land is the land of Egypt. Right. They will be enslaved in that land of Egypt. By the end of the book of Genesis, jo uh, Jacob's family, under the leadership of Joseph, goes to reside in Egypt. They stay there for four generations, and then after they, they leave, uh, they leave and return to the land of Canaan through, by uh, Moses and Joshua's leadership. This is what he's referring to. This will happen. Know for certain, going back to the terror and the great darkness, that's why Jesus constantly said, watch and pray, watch, see, behold. He tells us in advance, like Matthew 24 What's going to happen between his first and second comings so that we're not bewildered, we're not shaken up, we don't lose faith. Um, verse 14, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God will judge the nation. He did so, you know, we know, in the book of Exodus, Exodus 4 to 15. All of the plagues that were brought on the uh, Egyptians, all of the... Um, things that happened at the Red Sea, and all of the, the, the things that the people of Israel experienced, they knew that God was with them and against their enemies. I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. God did do this under Moses. He judged them and then judged the Egyptians and delivered his own people. This is also a token this is a major token, but it is a token of how God behaves towards us. He tells us that you, you will need to endure affliction for a while. But in due time, I will deliver you from this and I will punish your enemies. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering." For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, 
and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. The Thessalonians are just like us. We endure affliction, but we persevere. We continue in the love of God and continue until Christ returns. And meantime, before he returns, we are being considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Meaning, he's testing us, putting us in fire, taking away our sins constantly in order to be more presentable to Christ when Christ returns. Then, when he returns, Christ comes with his angels, he deals out retribution, he punishes the wicked, and they pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord and from his glory. But he's going to be glorified in us. Amen. Right? He'll be glorified in us with what he does to us and for us. Okay? That's how we are glorified. But then we see a punishment of our enemies. Do you not know that we shall judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6.2 And they will come out with many possessions. They were enslaved. They were mistreated. They did not have what they needed to have or should have had. But by the end of it, God reversed their circumstances. He reversed their circumstances, which is also a token of what he does for us. Exodus chapter 12, we have evidence of this happening when Moses delivered the people. Um, Exodus chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 35. Exodus 12, 35. 35 to 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and also 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request, lest they plunder the Egyptians. God reversed their circumstances. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians finally said, oh, Okay, we'll give you whatever you want. So they plunder them that way. We'll give you whatever you want. Um, and also in 38 it says, And a mixed multitude also came up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very great, uh, a very large number of livestock. So they were able to take all of those possessions out of the land of Egypt. 2 Corinthians 4.15 All things are for your sakes. All things are for your sakes. So God is working to make all things work to our benefit. Not the benefit of our enemies, but for our benefit. And that, that's what's here implied in this promise in 1514. But then, in reference to Abraham specifically, 1515 says, and as for you, as for you, he's not going to see all of this affliction. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Abraham's told it's going to happen 
in the far enough future that you yourself won't experience it, your descendants will experience it, you're going to die in peace. Dying in peace means you're not going to have all of this happen to you. You're going to die a natural death without the afflictions that I just mentioned. Now, notice this phrase, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Amen. What does it mean that he's going to go to his fathers? Where is he going? Where is he going? Here is one piece of evidence, just one piece of evidence, and we'll see a few more verses to corroborate our interpretation. One piece of evidence that the saints of the Old Testament believed in the afterlife, they were promised the afterlife, they were promised the world to come. Why is that important to say? To many of you, you might say, well, that's obvious. Why are you saying that? But it's not obvious. Because in many places, many churches, many academic circles, many commentators, they say that in the Old Testament, the people lived for physical things. They lived for this world. They were not told about the world to come. They did not know that they had souls or spirits. They did not know that there was a heaven and a hell. They did not know that the way to prepare for heaven and hell was to put faith in Jesus Christ for their redemption. That's the way many people think. They did not have any concept of the immaterial nature of man, the survival of man after death, a day of resurrection, nothing like that, day of judgment. They didn't know anything about any of these things about the spiritual world. Yes, many interpreters believe that. But notice here, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Chapter 25, look at chapter 25 when he actually does die. Genesis 25, 25, 7 and 8. 25, 7 and 8, it says, And these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. One hundred. So good old age, died in peace, right? Verse 8, And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good ripe, uh, in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Right. He was gathered to his people. Well, where did he go if he was gathered to his people? Because chapter 15 says he's going to go somewhere, and here it says he was gathered to them, to his people. Right. And who would his people be? His predecessors, his ancestors, who also believed, right. which would have been... Terah, and what would have been the line, in the line of, of Noah and Shem, and going all the way back to Adam, right? Among the believers of his predecessors, his ancestors, he was gathered to them. That means he went to them. We also know that there was a place of punishment, notice, in 25.17. Genesis 25.17. Assuming, which we can address later, if necessary, But short answer would be, assuming that Ishmael is an unbeliever and died a wicked man, which I believe is biblical, that he was an unbeliever, Galatians chapter 4, consult Galatians 4, 21 to 31 for that. That if that's the case, he also died, notice 25, 17. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. His people, which is a different people. And if it's a different people, there's a different place for Ishmael and his people than for Abraham and his people. 
Let's confirm that. Genesis 35, 35, 18. 35, 18. Rachel. Rachel dies when giving birth. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. She died. It says her soul was departing. Right. When it says her soul was departing, it's not talking about her body, because if you keep reading in this narrative, she's buried, it says in verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So her soul departing does not mean her body departed. It means her immaterial nature, her spirit, her inner man, that's what departed. And her outer man, the body, went to the grave. So her soul departed. Departed. Why that word? Or, and, or in 1515, you shall go. Or he was gathered in 25 verse 8. Well, to depart, notice Philippians 1. Paul says, For I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. I long to depart. He's using this language of departing. That means if he dies, his body's going to go to the ground, but he is going to be with Christ. I long to depart and be with Christ. That was the hope, the hope, the eternal hope that they had of a life to come, to be with other believers and their predecessors. Now back to, oh, by the way, one more verse on that. Ecclesiastes 12.7, I don't know how else to take this verse, and even liberal scholars don't know how else to take it, except <laughs> to ignore it, or to say that that must be some exception, or something that some religious fanatic later wrote in the text of Ecclesiastes. Now, I, when I say this, it sounds extreme, and it may even sound like I'm sarcastic. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm being literal. Liberal scholars will, will do that in order to get away from these verses. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then the dust shall return from the ground from which it came, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Amen. The Spirit returns to God, and the dust goes to the ground. Yep. There, there it is. Two-part nature of man. There, we have it. Okay, now verse 16, 15, 16. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Fourth generation in this context has to do with the 400 years, because the longevity of the people at that time was longer than it is now. After their time, it began to be 70 or 80 years of age, but at least with these patriarchs, it is longer, as we just saw in Genesis 25, 7, that Abraham lived to be 175, and even Ishmael, he lived to be over 100 years old. So, the fourth generation, they shall return here. That is, they will be enslaved in a foreign land. Then they'll come to the land of Canaan, where Abraham currently is. Why this time to wait? Why this waiting period? For, for in this passage means because. Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The word Amorite is one of the words because they were probably the largest group of all the peoples who lived there. So sometimes for shorthand, instead of listing them all and being pedantic about it, 
the Bible will just mention one, the biggest one. And we do that too in, in English idiom whenever we're mentioning things. So the, the Amorite is not yet, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. First, the iniquity of the Amorite. They were sinful people. Right. And God was going to punish them, but he gave them some grace or some time, some leeway before he actually punished them. If you want to call it whatever, okay? He, he gave them some time before he punished them. Notice their wickedness. Chapter 13, 13. 13, 13, Genesis. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. In chapter 14, Abraham knew that the king of Sodom was a wicked man. That's why he didn't want to have any dealings with that man. He wanted to minimize his dealings with that wicked king of Sodom. In chapter 15, 16, our verse says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Chapter 18, 18, 20, and 21. Chapter 18, 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. They were notorious. And specifically, he's talking about these cities, not the whole region. The whole region will eventually be punished under Joshua's conquest. But these particular cities, they were especially heinous and egregious in their practice of wickedness. And what happens in Genesis 18 and 19? They are punished immediately. Not in the fourth generation, not centuries later, but then and there, they're punished because of their sin. Now, this we have to understand. Genesis 18 and 19 is just one example of their sin. If we, we want to read a catalog of their sins, read Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. Right. That has a catalog of their sins, which sins Israel in the land they were to avoid, they were not to adopt the sins of the Canaanites, they were to avoid those sins, and Israel was even threatened, if you do the same thing, I will also punish you. Right, right. And why is this important? It's important to understand that God is a God of justice. The way he treats Israel is the way he treats the Canaanites, he and any other nation. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 18, God actually says that this is what he does he sends a message to nations and calls on them to repent. And if that nation repents, then I'll have mercy on them. But if they don't repent, then I will punish them. Punish them. This is the way he is towards every nation. And not just leading up to the time of Christ's coming. Right. But throughout history, he does this. Throughout history, he does this. Jonah is a, an example in the book of Jonah. This was under the law of Moses, Jonah was. You know, people who misunderstand, they say... Well, God doesn't judge nations now. He only did that in the Old Testament. And he did that because of the law of Moses, and he only did that to Israel. Well, he didn't do it only to Israel, because we have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the example of the Canaanites. We have the example of what Jeremiah says that God generally does. What Jonah did, when Jonah went to a foreign nation, to the Ninevites, right? Hundreds of miles away, Jonah went there and preached. So God... Uh, will hold every nation accountable, yep. not just Israel or not just Sodom. Every nation will be held accountable. Now, we're speaking of as nations 
or as a corporate body, uh, several people. Jesus said here too, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than every other sinner? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Right. Yes, the Galileans, were, they were punished for their sins, but you could also be punished for your sins. Galileans were, were not Judeans or Jews, right? They were Galileans in the sense that they lived there and there were probably some converts to Judaism from other nations and they went to offer sacrifice and then they were put to death. So you think they're worse than you are? No. You are sinners, they are sinners. God punished them in due time, God will punish you in due time unless you repent. Jesus taught that, right? And Jude, why does Jude tell us way late in the Old Testament, late at least canonically speaking, way at the end, toward the end of the Old Testament, before the book of Revelation, why does he tell us about Jude? I mean, why does, he why, why does Jude tell us about Sodom? He says why. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's still there in the Bible, Jude says, so that it might not happen to you and me, whether as individuals or nations. If we don't repent, we know we're sinning, we better get rid of that sin. Don't compromise with it, don't play with it, and don't say, how far can I go? How far, how far can I step close to it? And then, and then work my way back. No, don't do that. Repent when you know it's a sin. Now, lastly, 17 to 21. 17 to 21. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I, will, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he specifies who will be dispossessed. The Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. These are some of the major nations that live there. This is not the longest list, but it is one of the lists of the nations that live there or the ethnic groups or, or clans and tribes that live there at that time. Verse 17. Um, it's very dark and sun had set and it says, a smoking oven and flaming torch passed between these pieces. When a covenant is made, two parties typically are supposed to walk through the, the, the dead animals. When they cut the dead animals in half, both parties who are agreeing to be participants in this covenant, this agreement, this treaty between the two parties, they're both supposed to walk between them. But Abraham does not walk. This symbolism of the smoking oven and flaming torch is God walking through. Right. It's only God. And why do I say two? Because if we cross-reference this to Jeremiah 34, 34, 18, and 19, Jeremiah alludes to this ritual of covenant-making, Jeremiah 34, 18, and 19. And in th that context in Jeremiah, God's confronting the people for breaking the covenant, but it's an illustration of how the men walk through the dead animals, the, the path between the dead animals. Not just one party, but both parties walk through. Jeremiah 34, 
18. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant, which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. They didn't live up to it, so I'm going to punish them. Okay? Um, but in this case, in this case, it's only God walking through, which means it's a one-way covenant. Right. It starts from heaven. It's not us reaching up into heaven. It's not cooperation. It's not synergism. It's not, it's not cooperation. Amen. It's not God does his part and we do our part. We both sit at the table as businessmen and we, we, we come halfway to strike a deal in the middle. It's nothing like any of that. It's coming from heaven. It's, it's God, one way street from heaven down to us. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above, John the Baptist said. So this, that's what he's saying and illustrating here with the oven and flaming torch. Now, oven and flaming torch, God is, in Scripture, often described as being a consuming fire or a fire. Sure. Or he's going to burn in his wrath to consume. And his wrath to consume, uh, Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Right. He is a consuming fire. Then what did he explain in Hebrews chapter 12? He explained actually two things. And two main things in Hebrews chapter 12, but also what he's showing us right here and throughout Scripture. God is a fire in that he purifies his own people. Right. He purifies his own people. He puts us through hardship, affliction, causes us to walk by faith, not by sight, in order to take away sin constantly from our life. He's doing this. So he purifies us. And even the day of judgment is considered a, a time of purification. We're going to be tested by fire, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 says, that day. But also, he is a fire to unbelievers in that he punishes them. He destroys them and tells them that he's going to destroy them in that way eternally for their unrepentantness. Right. When they are unrepentant, he will be a fire to them. He shows that fire in tokens like the fire that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. It destroyed them physically, but Jude told us, but that physical destruction was not just physical destruction. It wasn't merely physical. It was a sign, an indication, a type of the forthcoming or forecoming judgment of eternal punishment, he said, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's the fire that's really dangerous. That unrepentant, wicked people, the reprobate, that's what they experience, not us. So the covenant in verse 18, this is for the elect in verse 18, and then the reprobate are in 19 to 21. In 18, the elect, and 19 to 21, the reprobate. That's basically what he's showing us that the elect will receive the promises of God, but the reprobate will not, and they will be punished. These are not the only reprobate, by the way, yeah. and, and those are not the only elect, but he's just giving us an example of how he's fulfilling his promises. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.